Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland, the only broadcast programme in Ireland reporting on this island nation's marine sector, its development, culture, history and tradition. Tom McSweeney here and thank you for joining me for the next half hour for our monthly Maritime Voyage. One of the most dramatic marine visual sites in the country is along Drawheader Port's Town Keys, the backdrop of the Boyne Viaduct carrying the rail line from Dublin northwards over the historic River Boyne. The Greek geographer Ptolemy is said to have drawn a map of Ireland in the 2nd century, which included the Boyne. In 937 AD, there were 60 Viking ships on the Boyne, plundering ancient sites of Ireland. There is a new vision much different to that for Drogheda, which declares it will become the first new deep-water port development since the foundation of the state. Dr. Joe Heine, former chairman of Drogheda Port and now director of what's to become Bremore Ireland Port, is an experienced international port management consultant. Creating the new port could cost between 1 and 2 billion euros and will take several years to complete. It's a very challenging project. Absolutely correct. And the Boyne, the River Boyne, all of it, was indeed the bit I would be more familiar with at the estuary, are a treasure, a national treasure. Uh, and pretty much every square metre of it is subject to one order of a kind. But it's, it, it's a wonderful natural resource. From a port perspective, it's a naturally scouring river. It does not require any real uh, dredging along the river, along the river berths uh, for shipping. It's at the mouth of the river you would have challenges, but that's natural enough around breakwaters on the east coast of Ireland. It's quite normal uh, in stormy weather to face threats, particularly east and northeast. Over the years, the port has been an important one for imports into Ireland. Timber, obviously, as, as mentioned, the newsprint industry, as mentioned. And now there's a major change in the port, a really big one going ahead, isn't there? Exactly. Port itself in Drogheda, the, the river berths, are themselves, uh, they themselves have a future serving particular local markets, for example, cement exports. So it, it needs to evolve. Uh, and one particular thing we've been discussing with local communities and with Loud County Council in terms of a local area plan for Drogheda is to exit the town and enhance the facilities down on the river berth at what we call Tomrose Point. You need two things for that to happen. One is an access road, which has now started, uh, and the other is the ability to to fund the transfer from one to the other. So that, that, that equation is all in the mix, and there is a future there for Rohada Port. However, there are also limitations. When you look at all Irish ports, and particularly on the East Coast, all Irish ports have physical constraints. All of us can see the end date on our current capacity, and we think in decades rather than years. So with that in mind, uh, in 2019, we started to look again at how would Drogheda port survive into the future, given that there are limits on the size of vessel that can go up the River Boyne. We identified there are limits on the size of vessel, effectively, you can take into Drogheda. Um, and, and we started to look at uh, a re-look at uh, options for growth, uh, additional capacity, complementary to the other ports on the Irish East Coast. So to that extent, uh, we revisited the selection of the site just north of Braymore Head. 
uh, all the logistical, technical uh, questions still came back affirmative. So since 2019, we've started to progress that division for that development. We're at the stage now where we have publicised a vision for the new port. It is just that uh, for consultation purposes. It is not a planning application or a planning scheme. It is a vision of what the port could look like and what the community can gain from it. And this would be the first major new deep water port since the foundation of the Irish state? Indeed, and I was trying to even go back further to see if we could actually lay hand on heart what would be the the most recent uh, brand new port location. Um, And you could, I suppose, argue that some ports have moved down river. For example, Waterford moved down to Bellevue. You could argue that that's relocation, Cork moving to Ringeskiddy. We're moving 12 kilometres, so it's, it's really the same concept. It's a very important development, and it's actually, isn't it, a public-private joint venture with the uh, Ronan Group? Yes, we, we went to a public tender process um, 2018, 2019, and had a look at what value there would be in the... We, we already had a special purpose vehicle or a project vehicle approved by government back in 2006. So we, we reactivated that and put 49% of the equity up for sale. Uh, and the best bid at the time was Ronald Group, who came in with a proposal that involved purchase of that equity and um, further equity to fund us up to planning. And the intention, the vision you have is in the deep water port, obviously for all types of imports and exports, we're talking, I see bulk, break, bulk and so on. Indeed, it's all the cargo modes. We aim to provide facilities on a phase basis for all cargo modes. That will be driven by market demand, obviously, uh, where, where customers need to, or port users need to find facilities, new facilities or expanded facilities. We would obviously be talking to them. But, Tom, it's an enormous opportunity as well around the 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 carbon neutrality of heavy goods and maritime transport. Because one of the opportunities here is to generate alternative fuels and and storage for alternative energy. There's a, a remarkable, according to our demand studies, there's a, a remarkable opportunity to export green energy to Northern Europe. And it will add considerably to Ireland's renewable energy security into the future. And we're not the only port who's thinking that way, but this is the, the biggest one on the East Coast. It's a huge development for Drogheda. At the stage that you're now at, as you said, you've announced a vision. What is going to happen from there forward? Well, from here on in, we, we, we are starting into an 18-month uh, approximately consultation process with the local community, uh, meeting uh, residents, associations, local politicians, all the various stakeholders. And that, that process takes time. In parallel, we are in discussions with the various planning bodies and in our sector, the marine and maritime sector, as your listeners will be aware, that's an evolving uh, context uh, and a complex one at times with many different uh, licenses, permits and, and permissions to obtain, particularly under the new MAC legislation in MARA. So these are all new areas. So we work that in parallel. And the third area we are progressing as well is into the detailed studies that you will need to run before you can finalise a design for planning purposes. If we have a fair wind, and it's it's an unpredictable area for most people in terms of predicting how long it takes to get planning permission in this country, that's not news to anybody. Uh, so with that in mind, we would be 
targeting an application for planning in 2026-27. There are a few assumptions in that, uh, and everybody would be aware of what they are. You make a very interesting remark there to a fair wind. I note that Drogheda, though probably people wouldn't um, be terribly aware of that, you've also looked at, and in the past and probably in the present as well, provided the opportunity for the port to be a leisure facility for the general public? That's one of the major opportunities that certainly uh, excites me personally, is that when we got into the detail with our, we have a company from Denmark called Henning Larsen who sat down with us to map out how the site would look and how it could work, particularly on the land and beach side. There's an enormous opportunity to rejuvenate everything from the beach to Lido to Marina to uh, safe harbour um, for leisure sector. There's, there's enormous opportunity to create coastal walkways, boardwalks, walking on the walking on the breakwaters. These are all things we are actively looking at and would really like to deliver. And it includes obviously we, north of Dublin, perhaps even north of Skerries, until you hit Carlingford. For those of my uh, sailing friends, it, it's quite, there's quite a gap. Um, so there definitely is room for another player uh, if if we can manage that to accommodate sailing vessels. The leisure aspect does give a community a sense of ownership, partnership in the whole port process, doesn't it? It does indeed. And, and as well as community options and community facilities around leisure, and, and that's a particular, to, to make this into a living space rather than it's the move away from traditional port construction to follow more of a European model of a blended or integrated development where you're not building a fence, you know, the port on one side, the community on the other. It'll be much more fluid and integrated, including opportunities for research, innovation, education, uh, not just the port footprint and indeed living spaces all very topical and necessary in this country at the moment but its core underlying attraction for me and for others is this green energy green fuels uh, decarbonized transport future that's that's really where i think there's an enormous opportunity for ireland as much as for Drogheda port and we are an island dare i say the obvious it's a resource we do not make enough of i believe Joe Heine, director at Bremore Port Ireland, and in that belief, he is absolutely correct. Kevin Flannery, one of the founders of Dingle Ocean World Aquarium in Kerry, is looking for help. Information about three fishing vessels that were purchased in Germany just at or before the Second World War. The vessels were skippered and crewed to Ireland via Scotland, and he's wondering if anybody would have knowledge about them. Were they for the government or a private company? And what happened to them? If you can help, his email address is kevinflannerydingle at gmail.com. That's kevinflannerydingle at gmail.com. Have you ever wondered how sails are made, harnessing the power of the wind from canvas on the old sailing ships to the modern fabrics on modern yachts? Sailmaking is a unique craft that takes many years to learn. Barry Hayes and his wife Claire Morgan have made a historic change in the Cork Harbour Sailing Centre of Crosshaven, where they've opened the first sailing shop in the village and moved the former UK Sailmakers Ireland Sailloft 
of the legendary Desmond Williams and family from the 50-year-old base it had near the village to a new base in the nearby town of Carrigaline. Not only has Barry Hayes built sails for boats, but also for Ireland's only working windmill at Blennerville in Tralee. He started his working life not in sailmaking, but in producing chocolate. I actually started here with Des. I was working in Dublin making chocolate, which is what I studied in, in bakery production management. And I was doing some work for Des, sailing with customers in Dublin. And then he asked me to come down here full time. So I moved to Crosshaven and then he sent me to New York, to the head office, to UK New York, where I worked from Newport down to Key West, racing every weekend, all year round. After that, then um, they had an opening in Hong Kong where they shipped me out to Hong Kong then. So I've never really done an interview. I've only been told where I'm going and now I'm back here after Des said he wanted to sell the business. So now I'm back here now running the business for the past seven years. From chocolate to sales yeah. is quite a change. How did you manage? It's really the production side of it, actually, because I knew how to produce chocolate, how to manufacture chocolate and stuff like that. Um, so it's all in the same kind of way. It's all sale production. It's the same kind of idea. But I was sailing in Skull Community College anyway, so uh, that's where I learned to sail. And then I just developed my skills over the years through production in Cork, production in New York, production in Hong Kong, which is the major production factory and now back here in Ireland. Sail making, sail design, it's so exclusive in terms of you're going to use the wind to power a sailing craft. So it's it's a pretty specialist business. That is for sure. That is definitely a craft that you have to learn. And really, I learned a lot from from yacht designers, not only sail designers, because the whole thing has to come together in a package. Nowadays, for example, when I design sails, I'll measure the boat completely, top to toe, then put it into a design program, which spits out a 3D model, and then I can um, design the headsail and the mainsail and the spinnakers and code zeros all to work as one from that 3D model. So it's done in real time. It's not done like in olden days where, you know, you kind of drew it out and you worked it out that way. It's actually done in 3D nowadays, and it's a much faster but more specific design program. It takes many years to learn the design program, and many years to learn the skill of the sail designing but it can be learned you need a good you know sailing background good engineering background a good sail making background and then all three kind of come together to make a good sail maker or good sail designer basically and of course the cloths used have changed so much there are so many different types of sail cloth nowadays way back from the canvas of the people remember the old sailing ships yeah yeah so i've done all of that actually my first job in hong kong is i built old canvas sails by hand it took us a year to build them from scratch to to finish because it was a big boat and uh, we had to my hands are still the same not the same after us but um yeah the canvas and how you'd shrink the canvas inside in hot water uh, first, before you'd, you'd seam the sails together, you know, and then stitch, and a stitch had to be done. So many stitches per inch had to be done. So all of that, you know, has changed to nowadays materials, which, for example, like I helped build a moulding system in Hong Kong um, for titanium or X-Drive, which is just a carbon fibre layout, which is done from the design programme, to Dacrons. Dacrons have totally changed. And one of the best places now to see Dacron manufacturing is down in Clonakilty, where they're in the old hood factory, they're using the same machines to now build Dacron again, but they're putting Kevlar and Spectra into the weave, and it's just beautiful to see it. It's like a train when the machine starts, but my God, it makes beautiful Dacron. 
building white sails and black sails as some now are that's all one color but spinnakers must take a totally different frame of mind yeah yeah that takes a good bit of experience to design those and and see what's needed and how things have changed boats have speed you know got a lot faster asymmetrics are a lot flatter nowadays than they were big full bloopers like for j109 a big full j109 kite where a Cape 31, you know, is is a totally different animal. Again, it's going so much faster. The kite design needs to be changed. And same with Code Zeros and how they're used. Even flying jibs are, are a totally different animal nowadays and how that's designed. Like a flying jib and with a head sail set inside it is a way more efficient upwind than a Code Zero is, where we always felt a Code Zero was the fastest upwind. It's not now a jib and a flying jib is faster upwind and more efficient than a Code Zero. But Code Zero designs have also changed for the rules IRC and ORC have changed the design of Code Zeros and how they're used. And and now the big flying jibs as well are also changing. It's a huge technical world now, sail making. It is a huge technical world, um, how the sails are built. We definitely make sails nowadays to last a lot longer. Years ago, maybe five, ten years ago, sails would have been, you know, changed out every two, three years. Nowadays, a customer expects them to last 10 years minimum. And that's how we design them and that's how we build them. We build so much more carbon into the sail, so much more strength into the sail. For example, Dacrons are designed now to last 15 years, you know, so sails are designed to really last a lot longer. So the customer isn't coming back as much. Sails are a little bit more expensive because the quality of how it's made is a lot better. But the um, they're definitely not built for like one or two weeks and throw it in the bin those days are gone a long time ago that's good for customers to know but coming coming back to the business here you you bought it with a partner yes i bought it with my wife claire morgan and um we've built the business up as much as we can especially the bag business has totally taken over um and how she's driven that side of the business is incredible um we've we're sending bags all over the world now australia canada america um, New Zealand, Singapore, all uh, all over Europe. Europe is a very big part of our business now. For some reason, it's really taken off in Germany, Denmark, and all those kind of Scandinavian countries. So we ship a lot of bags there now. So we've had to open a shop and a shop front and plus change the manufacturing of the bags so that they're made now in Cargoline with custom machines and custom manufacturing around that. We make the cloth in Belgium, for example, and we um, dye it in, Germany, in England and then we bring it over here to Ireland where we cut it out and then make it each bag custom made for um, every individual person, how they like it here in Crosshaven. Finally, I suppose one of the signatory indications of Mac Williams is the young sailors, particularly with the bag over their shoulders going sailing. Yeah, and every airport you go through in Ireland, England or anywhere in the world, you'll spot an Irish person because you'll see a Mac William bag no matter where you go. They're iconic in that way, but we've changed the colours and how it looks and how it feels and, and modernised that whole bag as much as we could. And that's what Claire is good at. That's where her expertise comes in at. You know, she's really changed that whole look and how it feels and how people like the bag and how they want the bag and how they use the bag. Ah, the iconic McWilliam sail bag. I've seen it in so many places. The Naval Service, faced with personnel shortages and operational problems this past year, having to lay up some of its ships, now has observer status in the development of a European patrol corvette. It's part of the EU's PESCO project, 
for a cooperative security and defence policy. Italy, France, Spain, Greece and Norway are leading the £87 million project to design and build the next generation of naval vessel to carry out a wide range of missions, surveillance, law enforcement and sovereignty close to the coast. Ireland, Romania and Portugal are observers of this development project. I'll be reporting more about it in the December edition of the Marine Times newspaper. Now here's Anton O'Callaghan with a news roundup. Hello, it's Mina Nullug. So let's start with some good news in December. Dublin Port Company has funded the Dublin Dockers Solidarity Exhibition in the substation building which is beside the port centre where it will run on Thursdays to Sundays open from 11.30am to 3.30pm until mid-February. The exhibition includes the stories of three dockers for whom the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society had been trying for several years to get public recognition. Michael Donnelly, Patrick Curry and William Deans for their heroic achievements while working in the port. We highlighted this campaign by the Society on Maritime Ireland. Three local artists did paintings of the three heroes for the exhibition, says Declan Byrne, one of the Society's organisers. It has been in existence for 12 years to preserve the industrial history of Dublin docks and links with dockland communities. It is appropriate that the exhibition is called Solidarity, he says. And as I say, Dublin Port Company has funded the exhibition. Not such good news from the inshore fisheries sector, where fishermen say they are in severe financial straits because of a crash in prices and processors closing. The National Inshore Fishermen's Association has made a request to the Minister for the Marine for immediate financial support in order to survive the winter. Many fishermen in the sector will not be able to maintain themselves during the winter months, which leaves an uncertainty to the lucrative Christmas season when fishermen would normally receive the highest prices of the year, the association says, pointing out that inshore fishing provides employment in some of the most isolated parts of the country where there are little or no other employment opportunities. An initial approach by Belfast shipbuilder Harland and Wolfe to acquire the Isles of Scilly Steamship Group has been rejected. That group, which has a passenger ferry, the Silonian 3, and two freight vessels, described the approach from Harland and Wolfe as not in the best interests of shareholders. The shipyard responded that it was disappointed and would consider options. The Puffin the black and white bird with the distinctive parrot-like multicoloured beak has declined by 28% in Ireland according to the Seabirds Count Census and is now a red-listed bird of conservation concern. This means that it is vulnerable to extinction. Birdwatch Ireland, the protection organisation, says that puffins rely particularly on sand eels for food, which seems to be in decline. That's one of several factors that may be contributing to its decline. More research is needed to get a full picture of what is affecting this iconic bird. Finally, and again, in this month of goodwill as the season of Christmas approaches, some more good maritime news to finish, coming from Bantry Bay, that beautiful stretch of water in West Cork, 22 nautical miles long, that's nearly 36 kilometres. A feasibility report proposing a major maritime facility has been completed for the Bantry Marine Activities Centre Group, composed of a number of maritime interests in the town, including the Atlantic Challenge, rowing and sailing clubs and others, focused on setting up a marine centre. The feasibility report, 
drawn up after community consultation, proposes a new maritime centre of two waterfront buildings with workshops, boat storage, public rooms, changing areas and other facilities. Public support in the town is strong for the project, near the existing Abbey Slipway on the waterside. And that's the roundup of maritime news around Ireland for this month. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. There's been quite a bit of concern expressed in the fishing industry over recent times about the level of inspections carried out by the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority on Irish fishing vessels, compared with those on non-Irish boats. This has been brought to the fore by the Irish Fish Producers Organisation, which has challenged whether there's a level playing field in Irish fisheries controls. And it's at the same time as the SFPA has launched a public consultation on its strategy for 2024 the 2026. It's a story to watch. Now, it might be cold on the bank of a river at this time of year, but Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland encourages you to go out as much as possible as he reviews angling in the past year and tells the story of international youth success. Hello again, Tom. Looking back over 2023, it's hard to say hand on heart that it was a good year for anglers. Don't get me wrong, there was some great fishing to be had, but overall this mismatch of weather patterns and seasons can create challenging conditions that never seem to end. Now having said that, I know of one group of young anglers who will look back on 2023 as one of the best years of their lives. Ireland's under-16 sea angling team won the World Shore Angling Championships in the Netherlands back in October. The team was tipped for a medal from a long way out, counting among them some of the country's top young shore anglers expertly coached by Brian Cook and John Marshall. The team, comprising Kai Butler, Caitlin DeClear, Nathan DeClear, Cameron Gilbert, Max Roach and Liam David set off with high hopes. The practice sessions went well and when the competition started the team acquitted themselves well. Two second place finishes on the first two days saw them leading the competition at the halfway stage. The third day proved tough. Ireland finished fifth but it was enough for them to stay at the top of the leaderboard. They were now fishing for the win. There was no room for errors coming into the final day. With the way the points were, Ireland could not afford to place any lower than third to be guaranteed that gold medal. When it came to it, they did it with style, winning the day and sealing an emphatic world championship by four points ahead of Croatia in second and France in third. So who is this team, you ask, Tom? Well, Wexford man Max Roach has been a feature of Southeast Shore matches for a couple of years and has represented Ireland in the past and packs a serious punch for his age. Liam Davis hails from East Limerick. This was Liam's first World Championships, but his third time representing Ireland. He's the current Irish under-16 short champion. Caitlin DeClear is from Cavan, along with her brother Nathan. This is the first time siblings have been on the same team for Ireland. But it's not Caitlin's first time fishing for Ireland. Caitlin fished at Lady Senior level in last year's Home Nations in Weymouth, aged just 13. Nathan, the elder DeClear sibling, is a 6 foot 4 plus Dutch-Irish fishing machine. Nathan has been on the two Irish Home Nations teams and by all accounts is holy terror on the GA field as well as the beach. From Carrickfergus we have Cameron Gilbert. He's won several Ulster Under-16 titles and this was his second time pulling on a green jersey. Kai Butler is another Wexford man. This was Kai's second time representing Ireland 
He made his debut at this year's Home Nations in Wales. Looking at these kids' achievements, it's clear what an important role angling clubs and competitions play in encouraging many of us to get out and fish. I think that during the winter months in particular, angling clubs become an important focal point to encourage us to go fishing. Left to our own devices, it's too easy to look at a bad weather forecast and make excuses not to venture out. But when you're engaged in something like a club winter league, you have that extra incentive to get out there, knowing you'll meet like-minded folk to share the fun or the failures. So if you're wishing you could do a bit more fishing, can't find the motivation to do it, maybe it's time you checked out your local angling club. Most are more than happy to welcome new anglers. That's all from me this week, Tom. Maybe we'll find you a fishing club to join in the new year. Safe fishing to all, and don't forget, CPR saves fish. Thanks for the invite, Miles, you never know. Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland there. And so we come to the end of the December edition of Maritime Ireland, and the end of the year beckons as does Christmas, when we should remember all seafarers and all those in the marine sector. Your comments on maritime matters are very welcome. My email is tommaxweeneypodcast at gmail.com. That's tommaxweeneypodcast at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. The programme website is maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. That's maritimeirelandradioshow.ie for more maritime reading. And we're widely on social media. Sound production on the programme by Justin Marr. A very happy Christmas to all listeners. Thank you for being part of the maritime community. And until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing. 